Welcome to Language and Justice, a podcast about the intersection of, you guessed it, language and justice. Episode 2, Injustice, Injustice. It would be pretty impossible to do a show on language and justice without talking about how language is used in the legal system. From the role of language in legally binding agreements, to how forensic linguists crack cases of anonymous threats, to how actual courtroom speech can be, and often is, used to decide a verdict. Throughout these subjects, the common theme of language is crucial. Sometimes multiple languages are involved, or perhaps multiple dialects, making this even more complex and even more urgent for those interested in the intersection of language and justice to discuss. In the last episode of Language and Justice, we talked about how easy it is to unconsciously make judgments about other people, based solely on their use of language. What if the judgments we made about people's language ended up having drastic consequences, like for instance deciding whether or not someone was convicted of a crime. In this episode, we'll continue to talk about language judgment, but this time in conjunction with another kind of judgment, the legal kind. Stay tuned to learn about how communication in the courtroom can be the perfect setting for a language and justice disaster. When we talk about justice on language and justice, we're usually referring to the definition of justice that has to do with fair, reasonable behavior and treatment of other human beings. But it would be overlooking a major component of just treatment to not consider how justice actually functions in real life, how it is carried out via laws and rules, and consequences when things are not fair and reasonable. A lot of people already have a pretty direct link in their minds between the word justice and the actual legal system so it should come as no surprise that the courtroom can be a site of injustice. Justice is often personified in the form of a judge or a jury, and language plays a very key role in bringing it about. In the courtroom, language is an important tool that is often the deciding factor on major questions that can even decide a person's entire future. Just think for a moment about how communication is different when it's in a courtroom as compared to when it takes place in a non-legal setting. When you're in court, you probably know that everything you say can be held against you, and you keep that thought in the front of your mind, making sure to choose your words extremely carefully. When you're having a conversation outside of court, even an extremely important one, you know that your use of language will not have the same kinds of consequences, because they won't have the power of the law behind them. In the courtroom, language becomes legitimated in a new way. There are witnesses, documents require signatures, You even have to swear that you'll tell the truth. In most contexts of communication, our words are not taken so seriously, or at least they aren't held to such a high standard. In many legal cases, language is a key part of the evidence that decides how the judgment will be made. Think about the many written documents that act as crucial evidence in a case, from contracts to copyrights to trademarks and beyond. That's why it's often so important to get agreements in writing. Imagine if you were suing your landlord for forcing you to vacate the apartment early, and you had to just convince the judge that you and your landlord had agreed to a certain date for the end of your stay, rather than showing them any physical evidence, because instead of a written lease, you and your landlord had just made this decision over the phone. 
you would have no way to prove your argument, and you would probably lose your case. Even beyond written agreements, language can be used to make or break a case in the sense that what you say in a confession, police interrogation, or testimony may be the deciding factor that weighs more than anything else. We'll come back to this point a bit later when we discuss a particular case that shows just how important the role of language in court is. Some linguists nowadays specialize entirely in the intersection of language and law, a field often referred to as forensic linguistics. Some major legal cases have required the expertise of linguists to aid in the interpretation of linguistic evidence. For instance, in a 2013 defamation case in which Tom Cruise sued a tabloid publisher for accusing him of abandoning his daughter Suri, forensic linguists were called in to help figure out what exactly was meant by abandon and whether or not it was an accurate description of what Cruise had done. In the end, Cruise settled for $50 million. It was an exciting time for forensic linguists everywhere. But perhaps the Tom Cruise example doesn't get your blood pumping. Too much Hollywood fluff. Maybe a more compelling example of forensic linguistics is the 1990s case that helped uncover the identity of Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber. FBI agent turned forensic linguist James R. Fitzgerald had been working on the case trying to identify the infamous serial bomber for a while when he enlisted the help of linguist Roger Shy to carefully analyze the specifics of the writings in his 23-page manifesto. Shai was able to identify Chicago regionalisms and terminology that made it clear to him that the writer of the manifesto was probably from the Chicago area, which did indeed match up with the locales of the Unabomber's first few attacks. After decades of anonymous bombings and numerous letters threatening his victims, Kaczynski was caught in 1996. But it would not have been possible without the tireless linguistic analysis that helped decide his case. Since then, the field of forensic linguistics has only continued to grow, with a greater emphasis on similar tasks like identifying anonymous letters and recordings. What we've talked about so far are just a few of the ways in which language is absolutely crucial to many legal decisions. But how about the role of language in the courtroom itself? Ingrid Piller writes about some examples of what happens to multilingual speakers in the courtroom. One of these examples takes place in Australia, where the language of the courts is English, and non-English speakers are usually given the right to an interpreter. And yet, a famous 1992 case involving five Japanese tourists proved the flaws in the system. Only one of the tourists was given an accredited interpreter. The police officers made little effort to see that the suspects understood what was being asked of them, and the primary suspect was sentenced to 15 years in prison. Although she has since maintained that she was innocent of the crime, it was the sheer lack of a mutual language that led to her completely misunderstanding the situation and not even knowing that she was under arrest. Linguistic injustice is evidently at the root of this case. In another Australian example, sociolinguist Diana Eads documents a case where a different dialect rather than a different language was at the heart of the incomprehension. Aboriginal Australians make up roughly 2% of the country's population and most are native speakers of Aboriginal English, a variety of English that differs from standard Australian English in systematic ways. Most of the differences have to do with communicative norms or styles, such as when silence is expected, and the exact meaning of head nodding. In a case involving three teenage boys who had been harassed by police officers for no reason, these subtle differences were enough to lead to the dropping of charges, and the lack of justice. Pillar also gives an example from Puerto Rico, where, because it is an unincorporated territory of the United States, 
learning English in schools is very common, and certain parts of the government use both English and Spanish. Still, most Puerto Ricans speak Spanish as a first language, and although measurement of English proficiency in Puerto Rico is tricky, most reports find that the vast majority of Puerto Ricans do not consider themselves proficient in the language. All of this in mind, one may be surprised to learn that the official language of the federal courts is English. Imagine, even if you had learned some of a language in school, like many U.S. Americans do, but you didn't feel anywhere near fluent, and you had to go to court and defend yourself in that language. It would be a nearly impossible task. On the other hand, you may be unable to serve on a jury because of the requirement to use English. This means that the only people who may be able to serve on the jury are upper-class citizens who have access to sufficient education in standard English. Think for a moment about how this takes away the fair and reasonable aspects of a trial on both sides. Diana Eads, using the Australia example as a guide, has been involved in efforts to alleviate some of these major inequalities in the legal setting. With police interviews of multilingual speakers in mind, Eads and another linguist, Aneta Pavlenko, have argued for a set of guidelines that should be followed. They suggest the use of plain English, as well as making materials available in other languages, that the stating of rights should allow space in between for comprehension checks, and that interviewees should be asked to restate what they have understood in their own words, among other things. So far, each of these examples has brought up a number of important issues surrounding multilingual and multidialectal courtroom situations. While earlier we discussed ways in which linguists have helped to serve justice, these cases demonstrate how injustice can arise as a result of the lack of linguistic intervention. We'll now switch gears and direct our attention to a few cases that pertain specifically to the context that I am most familiar with, the United States legal system. The following examples build off of the ones we've been discussing in that they too relate to intercultural courtroom situations, with the focus here being on multi-dialectal situations. If you recall from episode one, we talked a lot about the difference between a language and a dialect. Here's a one-sentence summary in case you've forgotten. A language is no more linguistically legitimate than a dialect, and that's not up for debate. In the United States, people seem to love talking about non-standard dialects as bad English. One dialect that has received a particularly large amount of attention is African American English. It goes by many names, African American Vernacular English, or AAVE, Black English, and Ebonics. For linguists, African American English is one of the most popular English dialects to study. And although it's been so heavily criticized and stigmatized for so long, sociolinguists since the 1960s have been studying it and repeatedly demonstrating just how perfectly systematic and, yes, legitimate a form of communication it really is. The topic of African American English will surely come up again in future episodes of Language and Justice, but for now, all of this is important to keep in mind as we discuss the next few legal cases where the cause of the injustice was indeed a deep misunderstanding of AAE. I'm now going to talk about a few cases that John Rickford and Cherise King outline in their 2016 article, Linguistics on Trial, which, like all sources referenced in this show, can be found in the episode notes. Let's start by going back to 1955. In 1955, 14-year-old Emmett Till, an African-American boy in Mississippi, was murdered after being accused of offending a white woman in a grocery store. Till's murderers later confessed to the crime, 
But at the time of the incident, they were put on trial with an all-white jury and found not guilty. The witness, Reverend Mose Wright, testified to seeing one of the suspects abduct young Till from his house before killing him, and he identified the murderer using his native language, African-American English. The court misunderstood his words, although to a speaker of African-American English, the testimony could not have been more clear. But this misunderstanding led to the two killers not being charged for their crime, and hence not facing consequences for ending the life of an innocent child. Let's skip ahead to 10 years later. This case takes place in California, where a man named Young Bear Tracks was being tried for the murder of a man named Chicago Eddie. Although Young Bear Tracks admitted to the killing, he explained that he had done so in self-defense. But, because he had spoken in African-American English, the jury claimed that his testimony had been incomprehensible, and the defendant was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to prison, five years to life. Though these two examples may seem far off in that they took place decades ago, any attempt to brush them off as being part of a problematic pre-civil rights United States of America would be overlooking the fact that this problem has continued to this day. The next example presents a perfect case study of the issues of linguistic injustice in question in a much more recent and hence tangible context. Trayvon Martin had a gun, and he and he stalked Zimmerman. He'd be in jail. Uh, Trayvon Martin could have been me uh, 35 years ago. No justice! If any of these news clips sound familiar to you, you were probably paying attention in 2012, when 17-year-old Trayvon Martin, an African-American boy from Florida, was shot and killed while visiting his family by 28-year-old George Zimmerman. Martin, a high school junior at the time, had been walking back to his father's fiancé's house from the neighborhood 7-Eleven, where he had bought some Skittles. Zimmerman noticed Martin while patrolling the area as a member of the neighborhood watch team, and quickly reported his presence to the police, claiming that Martin looked suspicious. What exactly it was that made him look suspicious is unclear. But within minutes, Zimmerman shot Martin in the chest, later claiming that the shooting had been an act of self-defense. Now, because of the so-called standard ground laws that exist in Florida and 34 other U.S. states, and because there was no evidence to refute the claim of self-defense, Zimmerman was not charged for the incident at the time. However, the media took notice of this event, with many people comparing the killing of young Trayvon to the killing of the young Emmett Till in 1955. In an age of social media, where Twitter had recently become one of the most popular sites for people all over the place to express their opinions and discontent, Trayvon's name was tweeted more than two million times in the month following his shooting. Trayvon was killed in March 2012, and his story became the first of the year to be talked about in the media more than the presidential race. Soon enough, everyone was talking about Trayvon, and the justice system had to get involved. Zimmerman was finally charged of second-degree murder and manslaughter a couple months later, and he went to trial in July 2013. However, after 16 hours of deliberation, Zimmerman was acquitted. The jury found him not guilty of all charges. At this point, the public outrage only increased. 
You may remember this moment as the time when you first started hearing the words Black Lives Matter chanted in protests and written as an online hashtag. It was this case that initially sparked the movement, and it's only grown since. But all of this being said, while we can all agree that justice is a key word in this whole situation, you may be wondering why or how this case has anything to do with language. To understand the connection, we'll need to take a closer look at the trial that took place in July 2013 to examine one of the facets of this highly publicized case that was more or less ignored by the public. When Trayvon Martin was walking down the street with his 7-Eleven pack of Skittles, someone else was there with him. Well, sort of. Martin was on the phone with his friend Rachel Jontel when the incident occurred, making her the star witness in the trial of George Zimmerman. You'd think that having someone who actually heard the whole thing go down in real time might make it easier to prove that Martin wasn't doing anything to provoke the shooting, and that Zimmerman had indeed committed the crime that he was charged for. Well, think again. As I mentioned, in the 1955 case, the person who testified that he had seen Emmett Till get taken from his house by his murderers was not understood by the court. And remember how this allowed the murderers to get off with no consequences? Well, in 2013, things were not so different. John Tell testified to the court, again with an all-white jury, saying that Trayvon had said that he was running away from Zimmerman right before he was shot. To a speaker of African-American English, the testimony would have been clear as day. In fact, in the paper I mentioned earlier, Rickford and King go on for pages and pages to demonstrate the ways in which John Tell's words systematically followed the rules of syntax, phonology, and lexicon of AAE. They even go deeper to show how some of her speech was influenced by other aspects of her background. With parents from Haiti and the Dominican Republic, John Tell was also a fluent speaker of Haitian Creole and Spanish, too. Everything matched up in terms of the grammar and structure of her speech. The problem is that no one in the courtroom spoke the dialect of English that Jontel was speaking. Not only did the courtroom have trouble understanding her, but her speech attracted widespread negative attention from the masses. Jontel was critiqued by the press as well as everyone with an opinion on social media, being discounted as stupid and unintelligible. Now, how a perfectly proficient speaker of three languages could be stupid, I do not know. But unintelligible is an especially charged term. To call someone's speech unintelligible is to move the burden onto them for the way they speak and off of you, the hearer, for not being able to understand. Because the problem here was not John Tell's use of language. The problem was how she was heard, perceived, and judged. The problem was who was hearing her and what they were and were not able to interpret in her words. As Rickford and King remind us, speech perception and evaluation are significantly influenced by listeners' attitudes often by biases from factors like race, ethnicity, geography, and social status. So when you listen to someone talk, you're bringing to the interaction all kinds of preconceived ideas about who that speaker is as a person, and all of those ideas are going to influence what you hear. The jurors claimed that they couldn't understand Chantel's speech, so her testimony was discredited completely. Critics talked about how she mumbled through the testimony discussion came up about whether or not the fact that she had an underbite was an issue. Keep in mind that this trial lasted for 16 hours. Later on, jurors explained that they found Jontel hard to understand and incomprehensible. But don't you think someone could have mentioned that they were having trouble understanding the speech of the key witness? Apparently, Jontel's name didn't even come up in the jury's deliberations. Her testimony had already been discredited from the moment she spoke. 
Studies have already shown that speakers of English with any non-standard accent are more likely to be seen as less credible than speakers of standard English. And yet, that doesn't seem to have crossed anyone's mind when the trial was going on. Don't you think that if a linguist or an AAE expert, or even just someone who understands the systematic features of the dialect, had been in the room, things might have turned out differently? When someone comes into court speaking a language that no one understands, and it is recognized as a legitimate language, that person is, at least usually, given an interpreter. Otherwise, it would be absolute chaos. No one would understand what's going on, and there would be a clear obstruction of justice. But in this case, the witness was a native speaker of English, and happened to speak a variety that is not only non-standard, but largely considered to be a corrupted, incorrect form of English that is, by the mainstream white speakers. But get only one AAE speaker in that courtroom, and I assure you things would have gone differently. If only to have someone to point out to the jury that yes, everything she's saying makes perfect sense. At the end of the trial, Zimmerman was acquitted of his crimes of manslaughter, and the killer of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin went free. Linguistic injustice was certainly not the only issue with this case, but to many people, this side of the story is not even known or it's been pushed aside for the sake of looking at the bigger picture. But to ignore these details is to ignore one major piece in the big picture, one piece that shows up time and time again, and yet it is rarely talked about. Linguistic discrimination. At the end of the paper by Rickford and King, several suggestions are laid out for how we can help avoid situations like John Tells in the future. First, they give some suggestions for linguists, such as doing more research on cross-dialect intelligibility, or advocating for speakers of underprivileged dialects and getting involved in legal cases like this one. Then they give some suggestions that anyone can follow. For example, advocate for better and more available interpreters for speakers of non-standard dialects when necessary. Advocate for jurors to be given transcripts, ideally transcripts that have been supervised by linguistic experts, in order to better understand what has been said in court, and to make a more informed decision, and keep paying attention to cases like these. Listeners, I hope you take these suggestions to heart. Intercultural communication in the courtroom is by far one of the most serious examples of linguistic injustice, and so many people know nothing of it. The more we learn about these issues, the more we can share them with people around us. It won't change what happened in 1955 or 1965, or even 2013. But maybe it can change what'll happen in the future. I, for one, would love to see a future with more linguistic justice. Until next time, this has been Language and Justice. Language and Justice is created, written, and produced by Anya McElinden. For more information, you can visit language-n-justice.com or find us on social media at langjusticepod. Questions, comments, and concerns are welcome. Language and Justice can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. Remember, language is a social justice issue, so let's talk about it.